Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and rise and tell them to their children, so that they should seek that set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Thank you, Jim, for reading those scriptures. <clears throat> Thank you, Emma, and the, the worship team for leading us this morning. You know, one of my favorite things to do when I'm talking to married couples, especially newly married couples, is to ask them this question. <clears throat> I'll say, since you've been married, what's something you've learned that your spouse does that's just flat out wrong? And I love asking this question because you can see the smirks start to form on the faces. And these conversations turn pretty fun rather quickly. And some of the most common answers I've gotten are things like, oh my goodness, they just, they hang the toilet paper on backwards every time and I have to go in behind them and change it the right way and then I go back in later and it's been changed back. Or, I don't know who taught that person how to fold towels, but my goodness. And my personal favorite, the great debate of all, the thermostat. I am convinced that in every marriage, there is a sinner in need of repentance that keeps the temperature far too high, and there is a righteous, righteous saint that keeps that AC blasting all day long. And one of the things that I find super interesting in all of these conversations that I have is that the following statement usually gets made somewhere along the way. Someone will spark up and say, hey, you know, that's just the way that I was taught growing up. I saw mom and dad doing it that way, and so that's the way that I do it. And while these examples are silly and these are things that we could debate all day, although the AC people are correct, the underlying principle, that statement is completely true. And it's this, children are always watching, always. They pick up on the things that we say, the things that we do, and oftentimes the things that we're teaching them, whether intentionally or unintentionally, can last a lifetime. And what this psalm is doing for us today is it's making it abundantly clear that if we're going to instill anything into our children, it ought to be our Christian faith. In these opening verses that Jim just read for us, Asaph is making a plea to the nation of Israel. He's asking them collectively as a group to make sure that the next generation might know the Lord. And this is important because this is an example of a historical psalm. Asaph is reflecting on the history of Israel, and he notices a pattern that he wants to bring to light for us. If you look at the way that he structures the psalm, we have this introduction, but then basically the remainder of this psalm can be broken into two sections. You have Psalm 9 through 39, and then you, or sorry, verses 9 through 39, and then you have verses 40 through 72. And what's intriguing about both of these sections is that they follow the exact same cycle. 
He begins each by making sure to remind the reader that Israel has forgotten the Lord. And it's only after making that statement abundantly clear that he reveals to them this repetitive cycle. And it's this. One, God redeems his people. Two, after that redemption, he cares for and provides for his people. But this is where it takes a turn. Three, his people would sin. They would turn away from the Lord. They would begin to worship false gods and he would have to pour out his wrath. The people would receive this judgment, they would receive this discipline, and they would remember him, repent for what they had done, return to God, and he would extend mercy to them. So if we consider for a moment the way that Asaph has left or laid this cycle out for us, we have to take into account the way he starts each section and finishes each section. He starts by reminding us of their forgetfulness, and he shows us that because of this forgetfulness, the Israelites had situations that led to misery. But he ends each section by bringing up the people's remembrance of God and relates to us how that results in mercy. So in Asaph's mind here, in this psalm, everything he's writing hinges on keeping God at the forefront of our minds. And in verse 8, He says in his own words, the phrase that we're all familiar with, those who fail to study history are, go ahead, doomed to repeat it, okay? Everything that he's about to lay out for this reader in this psalm is done so with the purpose that they would pass their faith on to those who would come after them. Why? Simple, so that they would seek after the Lord and they would not make the same mistakes that the Israelites before them had made. And remember this, he's stating this to the nation collectively as a unit. He's not just speaking to the parents in the nation of Israel. He's talking to the group as a whole. And so before you think to yourself, well, I don't have any children, or, you know, my kids have already grown, grown up and moved out of the house, I want you to hear this. This message today is just as much for you as it is for the family sitting in here with young children. So when I today use the words we or our kids, I'm speaking collectively. I'm talking about Ogletown Baptist Church's kids because that's what they are. They are this church's kids and they are all of our children. And this shouldn't be odd to us, right? God has called his people, the church, to spread the gospel and to make disciples. And when he gives these commands, what he doesn't do is say, well, wait till they turn a certain age and then you can begin to implement these practices that I'm giving to you. No, God's people are expected to be pouring into the lives of others, and that includes the little ones. So this brings me to my main point of this psalm today, which is this. The church, as a group, collectively, should be telling the next generation what the Bible teaches about God and his salvation in order to warn them against sin and encourage them to entrust their entire lives to Jesus Christ. Now, if you're reading that and you go, that's it? Like, duh, that seems kind of obvious. I would hope you would feel that way. But unfortunately, I've been in far too many contexts where this statement gets taken for granted. I've seen parents who will passively take their children to church on Sundays if there's nothing else on the agenda. They'll occasionally pray before meals and think that this is what's gonna do the trick. This will be all that I need to do to pass on my faith. Church members will delegate the work of investing in the children to church staff without ever considering how they may play a part in the spiritual development of the children they see week in and week out. 
And in some of the worst situations I've been in, ministry to children and teens is seen as babysitting or childcare so that the adults can engage in what they call real ministry. And then these same churches are going to be the first ones that would complain about the youth leaving the church in droves and not coming back and they wonder how we got to this place and why the statistics are the way that they are. And the answer is simple. The, the, the environment that they grew up in told them that church was not a priority. And when they did show up, they were pushed to the side and, and given the impression that they didn't really matter. And so it's not hard for us to see why the statistics today are the way that they are. So my appeal to you is to clearly see the value of ministering to the children and the students here at Ogletown, to not become like one of these churches that I've just outlined. We need to be a place that's known for investing in the future of the church. So the question that should come to the forefront of our minds is this, how do we do this? Well, there's a few different avenues or some paths that we could take. We could decide to just start launching a whole bunch of new programs and initiatives and try to build up hype and create this sense of excitement that after a few months may fade away. Or we could try to get flashy, implement all of the bells and whistles, try to create an entertainment atmosphere that looks good on the surface, but ultimately wins our children to the wrong thing. Or we could take this third path, the recommended path that I have for you, where we simply go back to the basics where we trust God at his word, where we lean on him for the things that work in uh, discipling our children. And that's simply being intentional with them. And as we look at this psalm today and this cycle that Asaph lays out for us, there are some simple steps that we can take. And if we do take them seriously, I genuinely believe we'll make a difference in the lives of the next generation here at Ogletown. So what do we do? Number one, we tell the stories. This is where it has to begin. A child cannot believe what they do not know. We have to open up God's word and share the things that he's done with our kids. And if you go home today and read this psalm in its entirety, which I would highly recommend, this is exactly what Asaph does. Over and over again, he brings up story after story after story within these 72 verses. And some of the things that he mentions are going to be on the screen behind me. And as you read through that list, the question is, why did Asaph decide to do this? Was it because these were his favorite stories and he, he just wanted to write about them? Was he bored one day and decided that he would just write a, a, a piece of poetry that would get published? I don't think so. I think he's doing this because he understands a very, very important concept. And that concept is this, that the stories in the Bible are not just stories. The stories in the Bible are meant to reveal God to us. Think about the, the stories listed on the screen for a minute. What better way to remind the Israelites of God's holiness than through his giving of the law? How could we forget God's power when we hear about him parting the Red Sea? When we read about the wilderness experience of Israel, we're being taught about God's grace and his provision for his people. We learn of his righteousness and his justice when we see him judging and rejecting his people for their sin. But conversely, we see his compassion, his faithfulness, and his steadfast love through the constant mercy and godly leadership that he provides for his people. And God's sovereignty is on full display when we hear the stories of the miracles that he worked in Israel, or in Egypt, as well as the military conquests of Israel. Brothers and sisters, we cannot miss this point. 
We have to tell the stories because these stories are God's revelation to us. And where we can fall short, where we might make some mistakes, it can, it can be oftentimes in our presentation of these stories. I've been working with teenagers now for about a decade, and one of the most common questions that I receive from them is this one. Do I have to read the Bible if I'm already a Christian? And my answer is always the same. I say, no, you don't have to, you get to. And then the eyes start rolling, and they make their little comments. But this reveals something deeply concerning. It shows how these students are viewing Scripture. And the question that I have is why? Why is it becoming more and more prevalent that the people I talk to don't see the value in the Scriptures? Could it be because we've taught them just like any other story? We open the Bible, we read the account, and then we just put it back on the shelf and act like it's any other book that we could pull off. Or maybe it has something to do with the entertainment-driven culture that we live in, where the kids are constantly inundated with uh, books that they can read, movies that they can watch, uh, YouTube channels that they could subscribe to, and it's easy for them to just group all these things together into one category. I think that this could be accurate, and if that's the case, then we have to be clear in our presentation when we read the Bible to our children. We have to make sure that they're aware that these are not just isolated stories, events, and incidences. No, all of these stories work together, they fit together, and they shape the big story that God is trying to reveal to us. And that's the story of how he is bringing redemption to this fallen world. We have to make sure that our kids understand the same God that we're reading about or hearing about is the same God that you and I have gathered today to worship, that he has not stopped working in this world, that our decisions matter because now he's working in and through us to accomplish his purposes. When we frame scripture this way, what we're teaching our children is who God is, what he's done, and what he said, and then we invite them in to the opportunity to be used by God. And let me just say this, there's nothing more important that we can present to our children. Not sports, not school subjects, not fun experiences. When we present scripture this way and we make it a priority, what it does is it eliminates in their minds that the world revolves around them. They begin to develop a biblical worldview that sees the world as God's and that they see that everything that they do is a part of his plan. So if we're going to invest in our children, we cannot neglect this first step, this very basic step to tell the stories and to tell them clearly. But number two, we also must warn against sin. And not just against sin, but the tendency towards sin. If we go back to this cycle that Asaph presents for us, we should notice that despite all of God's provision, all of his protection, all of his blessing, Israel still turned away from him and began to follow after wrong things. And the consequences weren't light. When they would sin, God gave them discipline. If you read through this psalm, there were people that died because of the sin involved in the camp. And yet they never quite figured it out. They would repent, they would be restored, they would be reminded of the Lord's goodness to them, and yet they would turn away again and again. We could boil it down to the sinful nature that they possessed, but oftentimes their sin came as a result of their intermingling with the other nations. And these nations would come in and they would lure them away from the Lord. And they would present 
other worldviews that were contrary to God's word, and they would draw them away from obeying his commandments, and ultimately that end up leading to them worshiping false gods. And so when Paul writes to the Corinthians about these experiences, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters if some of them were. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction. So so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Scripture's abundantly clear here. We need to realize that as we look back on the failures of Israel, the point is not that we read about these things and then point fingers at them and say, look how bad they were. I can't believe that they would uh, respond to God in that way. The point is that if we aren't careful, we can fall into these very same sins. And if I can be quite honest, it's going to be very difficult for our kids today and the society that they're growing up in to not cave into the pressure. There are so many competing voices vying for their attention and their devotion, much like the Israelites in their day. More and more, the idea of being in the world but not of the world is being challenged. They grow up in a pluralistic, postmodern society that views truth claims with skepticism. To be able to sing the song that we just sang, abide and, and proclaim the truth that Jesus is, the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the well that never runs dry, is seen as harsh and just simply untrue. That might be good for you, but whatever's good for me is good for me, and how dare you impose your belief system on me? This is the age that our kids are growing up in. And in this digital age, everywhere you turn, someone's posting online their criticisms of Christianity, they're twisting the scriptures to say things that they don't really say, there's pressure on all ends to affirm and celebrate sin in the world, let alone to speak out against it. An identity has become this subjective thing where it's all about whatever you want to be rather than basing your identity off of what God has revealed in his scripture and in his truth and finding that identity in Christ alone. And these voices are convincing. If you look at any statistics on how the world has shaped the children of our nation, they'll prove that they're succeeding. So if we don't prepare our kids and we don't teach them clearly what we believe and why we believe these things, we risk them caving into the voices of this world and turning away from the Lord. We have to teach our children that sin never pays off. We must. And as a matter of fact, we, we have to teach them that sin destroys lives. Living according to God's ways are always better and they have to know that. Even when it seems like things aren't going our way, even when it doesn't seem like it's paying off, Our kids have to know when they face difficulties that living their lives for the Lord is important. But within this, we also have to remember that if we're going to call out sin, if we're going to speak out against sin, we have to correct and warn our children with love as our motivation. This goes for all kids, but especially with teenagers. Uh, I've, I've worked with them long enough to see that they can see through you if you're not being genuine. And a teenager has to know that you care for them if you're going to correct them. We must be patient in our approach, composed. We have to believe that the Lord's word is what will do the convincing. If we approach the kids with snarky comments and agitated attitudes, we're going to accomplish nothing. We have to come alongside our kids in love, with compassion, to help reveal God's word to them, and to establish 
righteousness in their lives, helping them to flee from sin. So if we do these two things, the third thing that we have to do is we must exalt Christ. While we tell the stories and we warn against sinfulness, if we neglect to exalt Christ, we're going to fail. We want to avoid a telling of the stories that leans more towards moralism or just simple behavior modification. What I've seen happen in a variety of contexts is we we look at the stories and we then look down to our kids and we say, look at this character and all the good that he's doing. You need to be like that. Or look at this character and the way that he failed. Don't do those things. And teaching our children morals is good and it's right. But if we divorce that from their incessant need for Christ, we're going to come up short. All of scripture is crying out to us against this type of teaching. It's saying, you can't do it. You won't live up to God's standards. We need a savior to come in our place. And that savior is Christ. And what our kids need to know more than anything from these stories is that they need to treasure Jesus above all else. This is the message that we present when we teach. You know, Jesus himself stated in the gospels that everything written in scripture is about him. He told the Pharisees in John chapter five, he said, you guys are searching the scriptures because you think that in them you'll find eternal life. But these are the things that are testifying or talking about me. And in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is teaching his disciples and Luke records these words. He says, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets. And that's just a fancy way of saying the Old Testament. Moses wrote the beginning books. The prophets are there at the end. So he says, explaining from all of the scriptures the things concerning what? Himself. And so if this is the way that Jesus interprets the scriptures, this is the way that we must interpret the scriptures. We have to ensure that any teaching that we give to our children is given in light of what Jesus has done for us. These cycles and these stories that Asaph tells in this psalm, they always conclude with what? God's mercy for his people. We see God constantly meeting failure with forgiveness. He's constantly meeting their faithlessness with his steadfast faithfulness. And all of these examples in the Old Testament of God's mercy and grace are pointing forward to a day when Jesus would come, to the day when this promised Messiah that was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter three would come and pay the price for our failures and endure the penalty for our faithlessness. This is the story that we tell. This is the story that we pass on to the next generation. This is the gospel message and there's none like it. Four, we pray for submission. We need to be doing steps one through three, but if we don't shower our children in prayer, we're revealing this deep-seated belief system that says we don't need God in this. We're dependent upon ourselves. We can produce these children in a good way. No, we need to be dependent on the Lord. We need to trust that he is the one that will bring about true life change in our children. We lift our kids up in prayer because we know that God is the God that controls all things. And that's where we approach him seeking salvation for the kids here at Ogletown. So what is it that we should be praying for when we pray for our children? Well, first thing, we would pray that they would know God in their minds. That as they engage him in his word in their homes, in their Sunday schools, in their church services, that they would develop a deep and an intimate knowledge of who he is. But we don't stop there. We also pray that that head knowledge would move to their hearts. 
And we pray that they would trust God in their hearts, believing the words that they're being taught, believing that Jesus alone satisfies their soul. But then finally, we pray that that knowledge that's in their heads and that love that's flowing out of their hearts would help them to submit their lives to Christ. So we pray for submission. We pray that our kids would run out into the world with the gospel message. We pray that they would spend their time here on this earth living for God's glory. And these are the prayers that move the Father's hearts. These are the prayers that he loves to give a resounding yes to. So to recap, what do we do? We tell the stories, we warn against sin, we exalt Christ, and we pray for submission. But I wanna be careful that I don't just give you these fancy ideas that you don't walk out of here without clear avenues to walk these things out. So we've answered what do we do. The next question is where do we do this? And the first place should be rather obvious. It's in the home, right? Parents and grandparents, God has entrusted you with the stewardship of your children. God's desire is that you guys are the ones that are leading the charge for their spiritual development. And if you aren't sure how to do this or you haven't begun to do this in your homes, uh, a good idea would be to set a regular rhythm and a routine for family worship to be taking place. And I know the the temptation is gonna be to say, oh my goodness, adding another thing to the schedule, we're already so busy with sports and other activities. And I say this in the most loving way possible. If our schedules don't allow time for regular family worship to take place at all, our priorities need to change. You don't, if, if you don't have time, eliminate a sport from, from the schedule. If there's activities that are clogging up your week, get rid of one of them. Free up some time to make sure that you're taking uh, time daily to pour into your children. And what I don't mean by family worship is that you have to preach a 45-minute sermon to your kids every day, followed by a full set list of worship songs, and then take turns praying for 30 minutes for for everyone. I I also understand that when I ask you to engage in family worship, that this is going to look different for every single family that's here. Children's ages play a factor in how this is done. The most beneficial time for you to get together each day plays a factor And then your just genuine level of comfort leading your families plays a factor. But what I think is a good general outline for us to do in our homes would be to take time to just read a passage of scripture daily. This doesn't have to be an entire book. It's not an entire chapter even. Set aside a time where you guys read a section of scripture each day. And then as you work your way through a book, a chapter, ask questions, talk about it with your children. See where the Lord is guiding them, how he's growing them, where they're learning, how they learn to depend on Jesus. And if there's sin that gets exposed in it, help them to repent. And then pray for them. Use those conversations to direct your prayers. Pray for your children daily, not just in your your room by yourself. Let your children hear your prayers for them. Nothing stirs the heart of a child than to hear the way that their parents are praying for them. Pray for their spiritual development, for their walk with the Lord. Pray for the sin in their lives. Pray that they would follow the Lord with everything. And once you're done praying, we move on to my least favorite step in the family worship experience, and that's sing a song together. And I say it's my least favorite because if you know me, I'm not a musical person. When I came on staff, someone asked me, 
hey, are you like just replacing like Chris Morris's role? Are you going to lead the worship music as well during the 11 o'clock? And my answer was, not if you want people to come back. It's not going to happen. And so when we started singing songs in our home, it was something that I was kind of like a little bit embarrassed about. I'm not good at it. But let me tell you something. Those feelings faded away so quickly. When your kid starts to pick up on the lyrics and you see that smile spread across their face as they hear that familiar tune, it melts away all feelings of embarrassment. And if you have littles, hear me loud and clear. It ain't all sunshines and rainbows, okay? There's gonna be times where you get together for family worship and they are gonna be a mess. They won't uh, cooperate, they might cry, they, they wanna play a different game or something. And it can be really tempting, especially if you string three to four of those days in a row, uh, to say, you know what, this is no good. Maybe we should just give up. We're not really accomplishing anything here. But hear my encouragement today. Keep at it. Trust the Lord that he will use and bless that time tremendously in your homes for years to come. If you'd like some resources to help you out with that, if you just need someone to talk to of how can I begin to implement this in my home, I would love nothing more than to speak with you after the service. Send me an email if you you can't stick around today to talk. We can set up a time where I can personally help you to begin pouring into your family on a consistent basis. And one last thing on this point is this. Don't beat yourself up if you miss a day. On average, my family misses probably one to two days a week. And if you haven't started doing this, you're not going to uh, be successful right off the bat in hitting every single day, okay? Give yourself some grace and trust that the Lord will work in your situation. So we teach our children in our homes, but we also teach our children in the church. I stated earlier that Asaph isn't just writing this uh, psalm to the parents in the nation of Israel. He's writing it collectively to the entire group. It's a community of faith that he has in mind. And if we're New Testament believers, what we would call a community of faith is a church. And so if we want to read this psalm or hear this psalm with ears to respond, with being doers of the word and not hearers only, what Asaph is doing is he's calling on all of the members of this church to invest in the lives of our kids here at OBC. This can take place in a number of Ways, for one, we have openings in our Kids Connection schedule every month for you to partner in sharing the truth of God's word with our children. I'm extremely thankful to you. Hear me loud and clear. Thank you for those of you who have been serving and for those of you who have recently heard our needs and heeded the call and signed up. You've been a tremendous blessing to not only myself, but Barbie and Christine. Well, that being said, there's still holes that need to be filled, and we would love for you to be a part of what God's doing in the lives of our children. And men, hear me, I'm not just talking to the ladies in the room today. Our kids need strong biblical men that they can look up to and learn from. They need to know that there's both men and women in this church that care about them and their spiritual development. But to make a difference in the lives of the kids here, we don't just serve in Kids Connection. The prayers that you offer up to God for our kids matter. They are valuable. You walk through the hallways and you see a kid that looks maybe upset or out of place and you go up and you encourage him and you say, you you, you remind him of God's love for him and the way that God is with him and what you've just done is you've participated in that child's spiritual walk. 
in all the little ways that you could interact with the kids here on a Sunday morning that you see running around after the service that you might think don't make a difference at all, I want to tell you that they do. And it's not just that they make a difference. I want to tell you that God sees those things and he smiles on those things. They are pleasing to him. So what about a few scenarios? What if you find yourself in a stage of life where your kids have grown up and they've moved out of the house? Well, what a beautiful thing it would be for you to reach out to a younger family in the congregation and pour into them with wisdom and love. Have them over your house regularly for a meal. Become spiritual grandparents to their children. When I came on staff, I was thrilled to receive an invitation from uh, Jeff and Katie Gachet to come over to their house for, for dinner. It was a simple request. And I went over and I sat back that evening and I just watched the way that they interacted with my boys and my heart was so warmed. Katie found her way into my oldest son's heart very quickly by offering him extra sausages at the dinner table. She found his love language rather quickly. And Jeff wasn't too far behind as he took him outside after dinner and did one of his favorite things in the world, which is to hit golf balls. And I'm just sitting back watching the way that these lovely saints are pouring into my kids and I can't help but think, this is the way that the church is supposed to function. This is what it means to be the family of God. Or what would it look like for you young families that have children to look on over this way at our college students? They're a scary looking bunch, right? But to informally adopt one of these kids, to welcome them into your homes regularly, to show them what it looks like for a Christian marriage to function, what it looks like to parent and lead your children well before they go out and start their own families. I know how much I always looked up to the older kids in my life as a child, and these college students can become the, the spiritual brothers and sisters of your young children and can pour into your young children and be a blessing for your family. One of the most influential people in my faith journey was a college student. In high school, I wanted nothing to do with the Lord. I wasn't following after him. And it was a college student that noticed me, paid attention to me, and reached out to me and poured into me that made all of the difference for me. What would it look like if we invited these college kids into our homes? Or what if we kept our eyes open for new families, either new to the church or new to the faith? We welcome them into our sphere. We can get in this habit of building our circle and spending time with them, but what if we opened up our circle and our arms to new families that came into our church? We got together regularly with them, we invited them to go on vacation with us, we helped them to see what it looks like to live in community with one another. I can remember a conversation I had fairly recently with a guy that had been spending increasing amounts of time with another Christian family, and one of the things that he said really stood out to me in that conversation. He made the comment where he said that interacting with this family and seeing the way that they love one another and lead their children did more for his faith and leadership of his home than any book he had read or sermon he had heard. Just a family living out their calling. Could we be building these types of relationships with other families here at Ogletown that sharpen and encourage one another in the faith? You know, it should not be odd for our kids to come into church and have genuine multi-generational relationships with other adults and families here. We should be so committed to living in gospel community with one another that our children consider the people that they're seeing in this room their spiritual brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, and grandparents. Can we commit to this church? So we do these things in the home, we 
do these things in the church, we also do these things in the community. And as I stand here preaching to you right now, I am very well aware of the fact that we're gonna have a hundred little, hundreds of little munchkins running in these doors tomorrow for VBS. And there's been numerous people that have reached out and said, we wanna serve. There have been numerous people that have said, we've been praying for this event for months now. There have been numerous people that have supplied the delicious treats and goodies that we're gonna snack on throughout the week. And there have been numerous people that have said, I'm gonna go out and bring children to this event. And I want you to hear me loud and clearly again, thank you. Without you guys, none of this is possible. We understand that there are gonna be kids that walk through this door this week that may have never even heard the name of Jesus. And we need to be ready tomorrow to do exactly what we've just outlined here today, knowing that this week could be the week that children give their lives to the Lord. But this doesn't just stop one week out of the year. If you're a disciple of Jesus, he has commissioned you. You are sent each week to go out into your communities and to be light that shines towards other people. You're to invite neighbors over your homes to reach out to your children's classmates and sports teammates and and their families and invite them over to share the gospel with them, to model Christ-like character and parenting, and as Peter says, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have within you at any time. Invite these families that you interact with to church and we'll be here ready to pour into them as well. So as I wrap up here, My plea to you this morning is the exact same plea that Asaph made all those years ago to Israel. Let's not forget the importance of passing on our faith to the next generation. Let's prioritize these young souls and invest in their lives, knowing that God's word does not return void. And let's make a concerted effort as a group to tell the stories, warn against sin, exalt Christ, and pray for submission so that the next generation might know him and bring glory to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you are a good, good father to us. You are the perfect example for everyone in this room to look to in terms of what a loving relationship with children looks like. You've loved us so well. You've given so much. God, I just pray that as we look at the children that you've entrusted to our care, not just this upcoming week at VBS, but week in and week out here at Ogletown, that we would steward these children well, the time that we spend with them, that we would be wise, that we would be intentional, and that we would give our lives to discipling this next generation. Amen.